Turn with me to John 14, Gospel of John, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18, and considering the spirit of truth. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, the spirit of truth. Give attention to God's holy word. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ordinance of preaching. We ask that you would bless this ordinance as we have come in obedience to your command and in the hope of your promise that you would feed us through this ordinance for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, many of you, I'm sure, have heard of a group of, in, in some cases, perhaps most cases, sincere brothers and sisters in the faith who are charismatics. And of course, what makes the charismatics so charismatic is that they emphasize the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, if you have any exposure to charismatic teaching, they teach that the presence of the Holy Spirit is seen or known by the miraculous gifts that you can perform, either the gift of tongue speaking or the gift of healing or the gift of knowledge. There's probably a hundred others that I am not aware of. And when we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit, what the charismatics say tends to dominate the conversation. Now, this produces a couple of effects. Uh, On the one hand, the charismatics think that the gift of the Holy Spirit produces outward things, tongues, miracles, that dazzle the eyes. When inevitably those things fail and men like Benny Hinn and the others are shown to be charlatans, people react on the other way, on the other side, and begin to say or act as if there really is no Holy Spirit. Or if there is a Holy Spirit, His effects in our lives are not really that important. Because that's an extreme, we swing all the way over to the other extreme. Some seem to think that the Holy Spirit's primary work is revealing to us the deep truths of Christianity, probing the depths of the nature of God or the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Those who deny that there is a Holy Spirit, perhaps not with words, but in their teaching, think that the Christian life is merely a human way of life that is lived out through human effort. This is probably the opinion of most who are in the world. Even as Christ says in our passage, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. They don't know the Holy Spirit. They don't understand life in the Spirit. The Gospel, however, teaches us something better. 
It teaches us about the true gift of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of Christ and the apostles testifies to us that there is indeed a Holy Spirit active in the world today. And that the deepest and most important thing that He reveals to the hearts of sinners, the essence of the gift of the Holy Spirit, is assuring them that they are adopted by the Father. The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of assurance. The passage that we're going to look at tells us how that gift comes to us. And what we're going to see in this passage is that to all those who love Jesus Christ in sincerity, God the Father freely grants through the mediation of Christ and ratified by the testimony of God the Spirit the gift of assurance. To all those that love Jesus Christ in sincerity, God the Father freely gives through the mediation of Christ and ratified by the testimony of the Spirit the gift of assurance. We're going to see three things in this passage. First, sincere love in verse 15. Second, the gift of the Father in verse 16. And then finally, the testimony of the Spirit in 17 and 18. Sincere love in verse 15. The gift of the Father in verse 16, and the testimony of the Spirit in verse 17 and 18. Now love, as I'm sure you're aware of, is a very misunderstood idea today. Many think of love as an emotional attachment to something. We we use this very casually when we say that I love pumpkin pie, or I love vanilla bean ice cream. What we're expressing is that we have a strong emotional attachment to those desserts. And we tend to translate that misunderstanding into other more serious matters of love. In the scripture, however, we're we're taught that this is not really what love is. Love is not just an emotional attachment to something. Love is actually a choice expressed through actions that then produces emotions. Love is a choice that is expressed through action, and the emotional attachment comes after the fact. That's what biblical love is. Now, Christ, at the beginning of this passage, says, if you love me. And what he's speaking about is our love to God, but we have to keep something in mind. Our love to God is a response to his love towards us. Our love to God is not something that we produce on our own. In fact, our love to God can only come from his prior love towards us. John says this in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. That's the only way that we can love God, is if God 
loves us first. We need to keep this in mind because it's, especially in verse 15 when it speaks about obedience to the commandments, it's very tempting for us to start going down the path of the Pharisees. God said keep his commandments. All right, let's start start obeying commandments and trying to do it in our own strength, trying to produce the virtues in our own power. Love for God is something that only God can produce in you. You cannot produce love for God in your own strength. When we try to produce love for God, when we try to keep His commandments in our own strength, it always produces legalism. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. It's a great description of this, uh, of this dynamic of legalism. Colossians, uh, sorry, Colossians 2, not Colossians 3. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Notice that Paul is encouraging the Colossians to be aware of false ideas, false religion. He says in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ... From the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, and do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Notice that this legalism is a way of life that's produced by the gospel of men, if we can put it that way. It's a doctrine of men, from men, and about men. Verse 23, Paul says, These things have an appearance of wisdom. They look holy. They look righteous. In self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But notice how Paul concludes, They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, brothers and sisters, if we try to keep God's law in our own strength, if we try to love God with our own efforts, it will be powerless to mortify the flesh. And so we cannot love God in our own strength. The only way for us to grow in our love to God is to meditate on His love for us. That's the only way to love God more, is to see how much he has loved sinners. Turn with me to a few passages. Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord is speaking to Jerusalem, starting in verse 16. He says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord, your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine that? The Creator of the universe over His people dances and sings over you. Just as David danced and sang around the ark. That's how much Jehovah loves His people. But there's more. Paul writes in Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, notice, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, in Romans 5, 8, Paul writes and says that God commends his love to us in that Jesus Christ died for us. Ephesians 3.19, Paul writes about the, the love of Christ, and I want you to notice this, how important it is to grow in your appreciation of the love of Christ. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, starting in verse uh, 16. He's praying to God the Father on behalf of the church, and he, he prays to God the Father that God the Father would grant you, according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Why do we need to be strengthened, O Paul? We need to be strengthened so that Christ can dwell in our hearts, verse 18, and so that we might be able to comprehend the magnitude of the love of Christ. Notice what Paul is praying for. The love of Christ is so infinite and eternal, you can't handle it. And so he prays, God the Father, strengthen us by the Spirit so that we can appreciate even a fraction of the love of Christ. 1 John 3.16, our same apostle, writes in this same vein, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus loves his people. He has commended his love to you in the death of his only begotten son. We're about to celebrate the Christmas season where the incarnation and the birth of Christ is celebrated and remembered. But remember, the son of God took on that flesh out of love for you in order to give it away on the cross. That is how much God the Father loves you. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to grow in your love for Christ, meditate in his love towards you. And don't take it lightly. Remember Ephesians 3. Paul says we need to be strengthened by the Spirit of God to even perceive the love of Christ. And so our love for God comes first from his love to us. But notice also in John 14, verse 15, our love for Christ, our sincere love for Christ, is expressed in keeping his commandments. Notice how Christ puts that in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, he doesn't say emote over me. He doesn't say, be moved at my name. Those things may be legitimate later on down the road. But he says, primarily, if you love me, keep my commandments. Psalm 119, many examples in Psalm 119 about love for God's law, love for his commandments because of the psalmist's love for Jehovah. Matthew 7 is another good illustration of this idea. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. 
Christ is speaking about what judgment day will look like. Matthew 7, verse 21, he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, notice how these these that are condemned answer back. Notice what they say. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? And done wonders in your name. Haven't we done all of these outward marvelous acts? Haven't we done all these wonderful things for your name? Don't you see how much we love you? And Christ answers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The word in Greek, yours might say iniquity, but the word in Greek at the end of verse 23 is literally lawlessness. And so what Christ is telling them is that with the mouth, you say that you love me, but you didn't walk in my commandments. You didn't keep my laws. You didn't sincerely seek to love me by obeying me. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Has he shown his love to you? through the cross. Then show your love to him by keeping his commandments. Now keep in mind, we don't keep the commandments of Christ to earn rewards. We don't keep the commandments of Christ to gain favor. We keep the commandments of Christ because we love him and want to please him. It's very much like your human relationships with your husband, your wife, your children, your parents. At some point when a relationship matures, doing what the other one asks is simply done because you love that one. You're not trying to earn points with them. You're not trying to keep score. Just say, I love my wife. I will serve the ice cream that way. I'll make the coffee this way. Or whatever else it might be. Likewise, in our relationship with God, we keep the commandments because we love Him. Not because we're trying to earn anything from him. And so Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. These are those that sincerely love the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says that those, to those that love me, the Father's going to give you a gift. The Father's going to give you a profound gift. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another gift helper. The gift of assurance truly is a gift of grace. Those that are assured that they belong to Christ have been given that gift by the mercy and love of God the Father. Notice that it also comes through the mediation of the Son. I will pray the Father and He will give you this gift. The merits of this gift The one who's earned this blessing is all the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not us. We are not worthy to enjoy these blessings, but Christ is. You ever read in Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 where there's the throne room of God and then the book is there, it's sealed and nobody can open it. And then the lamb who was slain approaches the throne. 
he opens the book and all the elders in heaven fall down and they say, Worthy are you, O Lamb, to receive glory, blessing, riches, and honor. Worthy are you. You are the worthy one. And likewise here, Christ is the one who is worthy. He has earned this privilege from the Father. And notice the promise that he gives to you. I will pray the Father, and the Father will give you another comforter. Properly speaking, you can see it in the rest of our passage. This gift is the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says that it's another helper. The word in Greek for another is is a word that simply means of the same quality. There's two words in Greek for other. There's this one that's used here, and there's the other one where we get the word hetero from. So hetero means of a different kind, but the word that's used here is not that word. It's the word that means of the same kind. And so what Christ is saying is that this other comforter is going to be of the same kind as myself. He's going to be of the same quality as I am. He's going to be divine. He's going to give you another helper. This is going to come up later in the passage, but just keep that in mind. And notice he's also called a paraclete. That's what the word in Greek is for helper. A paraclete is one who comes alongside and encourages. He either exhorts or encourages, but he walks alongside you and advocates for you as you go down the path. Notice also that this helper will abide with you forever. This is an unchangeable gift. It's irrevocable. It will never be taken back. Now keep in mind why that is. This gift is unchangeable, irrevocable. It is perpetually in your possession. Because the gift comes through the merits of Christ, not your merits. The gift comes through the righteousness of Christ, not your righteousness. The gift comes through the mediation of Christ, not your mediation. Christ's merits, Christ's righteousness, Christ's mediation never fails. And so as long as he is in the presence of the Father praying on your behalf, you will have the Holy Spirit walking alongside you in this life. We need to understand, based on this passage and others that we're going to look at, The primary gift of the Father, the greatest thing God the Father can give you, is the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Christ is speaking about the the goodness of the Father. And he says that if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father give good things to those who ask him? The parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, the words change a little bit. Christ says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the chief gift that God the Father can give you. It is the chief blessing that Christ purchased through his finished work. It's the gift that was poured out at Pentecost, and it's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. What's the practical use from this? This is a guide for our prayers. Often, I think our prayers go to seed because we often 
pray for things that are beneath us as Christians. We'll often pray for a different circumstance. When what God has promised you is not a different circumstance, He's he's promised you the Holy Spirit to change your heart in the midst of that circumstance. And so what we need to be praying for is this gift of the Holy Spirit to do His work in us so that we can see more of His power and more of His grace. Well, Christ says, I'll pray the Father. He'll give you this gift. And now he begins to speak about what this gift is going to do, what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Notice first off, verse 17. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Spirit of Truth in this context because the Spirit's job is to bear witness to the truth. He is, as it were, the... uh, divine witness that ratifies the truth of Christ. You know, in the law it says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Well, Christ has come and borne witness to the word. He's the first helper. The Holy Spirit comes. He's the second witness and bears witness to the truth of the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit is a witness. He's the spirit of truth because he bears witness to the truth. And I want you to be encouraged by this because in this context, the truth that the Holy Spirit witnesses to is that you belong to God, that you really are one of His. It's not so much the truth that Christ's cross saves you from your sins or that Christ really is the Son of God. The truth that He's witnessing to is that you belong to God. You have been adopted. You are one of His. Paul speaks in Romans 8, verse 16. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is the ground of our assurance, the living witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, as you have probably experienced, when your hearts fail you, when your mind is full of doubts, when your conscience is clouded with guilt, when providence is thundering and raining upon you, there is another one who is greater than your heart, who bears witness to your heart that you do belong to God, that you are one of His. It is His testimony which is the ground of our assurance when days are dark and hearts are weak. The testimony of the Holy Spirit. This refers to our conscious experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a very key idea to understand. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. As Reformed, we tend to miss the boat on this a lot. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. As Reformed believers, we tend to miss this aspect of the Spirit's work in our life because... I mean, as Reformed, we believe in total depravity. We believe man can do nothing to save himself unless the Holy Spirit first regenerates him. Amen and amen. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just regenerate you at the first. The Holy Spirit also comes into your life and walks alongside you to the last. There is an unconscious operation of the Spirit in regeneration. You don't know when that happens. You don't experience it with your waking eyes. You can't tell when that happens. 
There's also a conscious experience of the Spirit when the Spirit comes down with power and truth testifying to your heart, to your very conscious experience that you are one of God's. That's what Paul speaks about in Philippians, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 13. Notice, notice the order he says here. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice the order. Hearing the gospel, exercising faith, receiving the Spirit. Seems to be backwards, doesn't it? We would want to say, gospel is preached, Spirit comes, changes our heart, then we express faith. That's unconscious regeneration. What Paul is describing is that as you exercise faith, God gives you more of the Spirit. God pours out more of the Holy Spirit into your experience. God pours the Spirit to testify with your spirit. Let me put it to you this way. The assurance that you are saved is something that comes directly from the Holy Spirit upon your own experience. It's something we experience now in this life. Now, this leads us to speak about false ideas of assurance. Westminster Confession, chapter 18, paragraph 2, speaks about two false ideas of of assurance. The first one is a conjecture. Now, you know what a conjecture is. Conjecture is a big fancy word for a guess. And what the confession is saying is that there are many in the church who are just taking a guess that they're Christians. The gospel says Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners. I'm a sinner, so maybe I'm a Christian. I'll just take a guess, and they walk through life with that kind of assurance. The other kind of assurance that, he's, that they speak of is called a probable assurance. A probable assurance would be taking the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners. I am a sinner, And I'm a member of the church, so I am probably a Christian. I'm likely to be a Christian. I've been baptized. I was born into a Christian family. I know my Bible pretty well. I'm probably a believer. Confession calls these things false assurance, carnal assurance. Now, why is that? In both of these examples... Assurance is based in our own understanding. Assurance is based in our own thinking, in our own logic, in our own reasoning, in our own understanding of the Scriptures. And if you're like me, you can get it wrong many times. What the gospel holds out to us, though, is not a fallible assurance. It's not a carnal assurance that's based on your own testimony about yourself. It's an assurance that's based on the testimony of the Spirit about you. It's based on a divine testimony that comes from the living Spirit of God. This is the effect of the Spirit's testimony, that you have an infallible assurance Now, before we go further in our passage, this this means one very important thing. It is very important in light of this 
when you pray, when you meditate on the scriptures, when you come to the sacraments, that you wait for the Lord to bless. You have to wait for the Holy Spirit to bless it. Sometimes we rush in, like our children, we we love our children, but sometimes the children rush into the dinner table with muddy shoes before the food is on the table, and they start going to town at the dinner table. Oftentimes we're like that in our prayers. Lord, you've said that you would bless me, and I'm praying that you would bless me, and thank you very much, goodbye. We don't wait for the Lord. We have to wait on him to bless it by his spirit. We have to wait for that conscious assurance that the Holy Spirit is strengthening us because it's his testimony, not our own. Returning to John 14, we see the effect, some of the effects of the Holy Spirit's testimony. Notice what he says in verse 18. When the Holy Spirit is with you, Christ is with you. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Notice, remember I said earlier, this paraclete is of the same quality as Christ. He's equally divine with the Son. He's a member of the Holy Trinity. And where one member of the Holy Trinity is, all the rest of them are present with him. He who has the Spirit has the Son. He who has the Son has the Father. He who belongs to the Father has the Son. And the one who is in the Son has the Spirit of the Son leading him throughout his whole life. So one of the effects of the Holy Spirit being present with you is that you are conscious that Christ is with you. But notice more more importantly, the way Christ says this in verse 18, you remember the context of John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Christ is visibly about to be taken away from their faces. And Christ assures them, I'm not going to leave you orphans. You know what makes an orphan's existence so tragic? They don't know who they are. They have no assurance of who they are or what they're supposed to be. Their father may have been taken from them through death or tragedy or his own sins. Their mother may have given them up for adoption. And people who are orphaned at a young age walk through life struggling with assurance and with a healthy sense of their own identity. Christ says, by the effect of the Holy Spirit, you will not be an orphan. You will not be abandoned by your Father, but I will come to you and comfort you in the same way that orphans are comforted, by being adopted into the family of God. You are not orphans, because the Holy Spirit will come to you. Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6, gives expression to this uh, grace of God. Psalm 68, 1 through 6. The psalmist writes, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. What a mighty warrior 
Notice what David says next. A father of the fatherless. A defender of widows. Is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. God is the God who adopts orphans and brings them into his family. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, he assures you that you have been adopted into his family. To all of those that sincerely love the Lord Jesus, God the Father freely gives you, through the mediation of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who assures you and testifies and seals you up for your eternal inheritance that you indeed belong to God. By the grace of the gospel, God holds out this gift of assurance to all those that sincerely love the Lord Jesus. This gift is the powerful testimony of the Spirit of God that you are indeed a child of God. He may make you wait long and labor hard for this assurance. You may struggle and labor through all of your life before you receive this insurance. But to know that heaven smiles upon you, to know infallibly that Jehovah rejoices over me with singing, is worth all the waiting and all the sufferings of this life. Brothers and sisters, as Peter said in his second letter, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Because this will, gro- this will ground you when the storms of life come. This will give you sun in the middle of winter. Having this assurance and the testimony of the Spirit is what will keep you walking until Christ returns and we see him face to face. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit and for his powerful testimony in our lives. We pray that you would help us to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. And so an entrance might be abundantly supplied to us in the kingdom of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us ever to walk in the way of your commandments that we may not grieve your Holy Spirit, but we might walk in the joy and the light and the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, even as Paul prayed, the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us. We ask for that, O Lord. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we close our worship this evening, stand with me as we sing Trinity Hymnal 446, which is Psalm 1. Trinity Hymnal 446. Psalm 1.